Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. A big welcome to Season 6, where we continue to explore coaching, learning, and development. As usual, my guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Nick Yeah, hello. My name is Nick Ward. I'm the Altis Programs Director. I live out in South Lake Tahoe in California, but prior to that, I had a 10-year journey with Sheffield Eagles Rugby League and uh, lived in the city of Sheffield for a long period of time. Um, Now, the interest of being here today really emanated from a great conversation with our other two guests today on the Altis Mentorship Phase 3, which is Mastery with Coach Dan Paff, through the topic of building coaches' confidence. It emerged from a prior discussion the day before when the coaches were very engaged in talking about how they build their athletes' confidence. And we turned the tables on them the next day when we spoke about them and their own confidence. And it wasn't exactly crickets, but it was clear it was a much more challenging conversation for them to engage in. And through this, we've uh, also now um, worked with Josh Fletcher also on our phase two mentorship to integrate practitioner health and well-being. And this will also be a theme in our new phase one mentorship coming up later in the year. We feel it's a very, uh, I don't like calling it a topic, it's a very important aspect of life is how you um, can sustain a career in coaching and you know maintain a, a level of healthy Uh, well-being, time with your family, time doing things that you enjoy in a profession that on the surface appears to want to suck the life out of you. Okay, hi, uh, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga. I am a senior lecturer in psychology, um, a sports psychology consultant, and my main area of research is in the psychology of coaching, uh, specifically exploring stress and burnout and well-being in high-performance coaching environments. So that just leaves me. My name's Josh Fletcher. I have a young two-year-old who's currently sleeping, so I'm going to talk really, really quietly. Uh, I am from a big family. Um, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, I suppose I'm probably the wild child a little bit, really, which is, uh, I guess, I've carried that into my uh, career. I've always wanted a weird and wonderful career path and I got to a certain point and decided that that was exactly the pathway I was going to go down. I spent many years building it for myself. Um, I spent time with English Institute of Sport in Sheffield where I came when myself and Nick met, then some time rather than Titans Rugby. Then I, so I did three years each of those or three and a half at each. Then I just absolutely hit the wall. I just completely and totally and utterly burnt out, sat on a beach one day uh, in the off season and said, I don't want my life to be like this anymore. And uh, went about changing it and seeking out exactly what it is I wanted to do. Um, And 
I wanted to work abroad. I wanted to broaden my horizons. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to look outside my, uh, live outside my comfort zone. So within three weeks, I having got back from that holiday, I had three job interviews in three different countries. Within four weeks, I had three job offers. And within, I think it was six weeks, I was on a plane to India. <laughs> Needless to say, I chose the weirdest, wackiest, least well-paid, most random, most uncertain, most bizarre, most totally unexpected, unexplainable decision out of all of them. Uh, and fr from there, that's pretty much how my career's progressed. Uh, I moved from India, did three and a half years with the Special Forces in Exos, with Exos in Romania. And then I did, uh, I've recently moved over to France. I live in Lyon. I've been here for about a year and I currently work for a performance company called Hinter. Uh, did a year in Formula 2 and now I'm in Formula 3. So that's uh, that's where I'm up to at the moment. Fantastic. That's a great story. So, Nick, as you mentioned, I guess, so the conversation you had with, with Pete and Josh kind of led to a bit of a tweet. And, and as I said, I'll, I'll kind of put the, the link to that in the show notes. But the question I think that grabbed, certainly grabbed my attention and then the conversation that followed was whose responsibility is your own health and wellness so do you guys just want to kind of talk talk the the listeners through how you've got to this stage like obviously you guys have, have worked together a little bit so what what really brings this to the fore for you why why is it a big issue that the industry i guess needs to be paying more attention to you know I, I, clearly you as an individual you have choices in in, in life to make and um you know you try to navigate that maze of a coaching career pathway you know you you hit many dead ends you go down many false paths and uh you know through that that takes energy and it can exhaust you and you have uh, other life events come along the way maybe with family maybe with children and in all of those influence your ability to to make different decisions um so you know there is a a large part of that and, and in our industry is sport and health performance. You know, you would suspect we we should be experts at taking care of ourselves. But as we know, a lot of a lot of things are shaped by your environment. So how supportive is your environment of you saying, I need a day off, I need a rest day, I I need some more support. And you know, interestingly, it was a it was a placard or a certificate I saw when I was working at Sheffield Hallam University back in uh, mid 2000, something like that, when I first started there. And there was a sign on the wall saying investors in people. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why they got that award for. And there was a lot of, you know, um, uh, check box items that were marked off as to why they were investors in people. And I thought that's a really interesting thing. How do I, as a future, whether it be mentor, looking after other coaches in my system, how do I ensure they have an environment where they feel invested in? Interestingly, though, at that time, I only took that to meant I was invested in their career advancement and development. I didn't necessarily expand that out to think it's also broader than that. It's who they are as a person first, you know, and their life as a person, not just their profession or their career. But that was really what kickstarted my my interest in um, in you know, kind of whose responsibility is it anyway? How how close have you guys got to answering that question? 
because I mean that that's I guess kind of where the thread went wasn't it that it ends up being a little bit of both but I'd be interested in in all of you kind of giving me I guess your own individual answer like is it is it it answers the question your own by it being ours is it 100% ours can, can it be someone else's like how much can we expect an organization to be supporting us and doing this type of stuff yeah I'll jump in on that one so I had this project whilst I was in Romania where we were required to go about wholesale institutional and cultural change within the military. And it is a massive beast. It's absolutely huge beast. And for me, what, what I'm trying to do now with my company career blueprint and this conversation we're having is identical. It's a monster. It's an absolutely huge beast, but you start at the lower level but you're also trying to influence from the top down and the people that are in the middle will be the, the most challenging. So that's the people that you squeeze. The guys along the ground are the onesies and twosies. That's the individual practitioners on the ground, the sports coaches, the sports scientists, SNC, nutritionists, physios, you name it. And then also you need to come in at the highest level and give the skills, tools and resources for the institutions, the organizations to be able to uh, influence change where they struggle at the highest end is budget 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 they might think they're doing something by saying oh we did a well-being workshop and we're all sorted now it doesn't quite work like that and this is why there's a duty of care from the highest level and also from the lowest level with yourself you have a duty of care to yourself so where I think our industry struggles a little bit is that if you look at most other really established industries like, I don't know, let's let's even use something like the NHS. There are HR departments and there are set guidelines and duties of care and, and there are pathways and methods that people are following. But because we're still quite young, that's, that doesn't exist for us. It's almost like that, that, that governing body isn't quite there and representing us well enough. So I think there's a duty of care from the, the highest level, but I don't think the highest level are going to do it unless we provide and bring them the solutions. So for me, it's this is private, private companies that are going to be doing this, um, exactly the same as what I'm trying to do with mine. Yeah, and, and I think, Josh, one of, the, one of the problems that we face within sport that's perhaps different to, uh, to, to, to other areas is that the environment itself, the environment of high performance sport doesn't necessarily allow for, for self-care. So you can have all of these, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned organizations having a duty of care responsibility, and that's all, all very well and good. But the environment of high performance sport is one that's just characterized by toughness and grit and resilience and pushing through against uh, adversity and all of those types of things. And it's really this kind of hyper masculine environment where uh, that there is no room for help seeking. And what we find is that coaches will uh, mask emotional difficulties and hold up a mask of those things to appear as if they're coping with stress, because that's what high performance coaches should do that's what sport's all about right um so what happens is it becomes almost by accident an individual responsibility to to manage this stuff to manage stress to deal with it to to take care of yourself the problem with that is that when it goes wrong and people experience burnout and people experience these difficulties associated with the stresses of high performance sport it also becomes their fault for not being able to manage it rather than the organization's 
So absolutely, there is a, a duty of care for organizations to, um, you know, provide the space for coaches to uh, be able to practice self-care, to be able to look after themselves. But we, we're fighting against this just masculine, you know, environment of sport itself. This this idea of toughness and grit that just pervades everything that we do in sport. So I think that's kind of one of the one of the things that we have to have to really challenge. I was, but you beat me to it, Pete. That was one of the questions I scribbled down. So, can pro sport use and abuse basically what it does at the moment because it is desirable? I mean, I'd, I'd be around a lot of students, a lot of kind of you know university courses and those types of things. And you ask anybody as a coach in in whether you know S and C analysis or, or you know on the field kind of sport coaching, where, where do you want to work? And it's performance sport. Like everyone has that desire, which I think is phenomenal. And and 95% of them are never going to get there which is the reality of the nature of the jobs and everything else but you know you, that that conveyor belt is always churning isn't it so how and it it kind of works and I and I say that in a enough people survive it for long enough to have some success for the model to perpetuate itself at, at what point do we? Do you guys think the model will break or needs to be broken, or like how, how does you get how do you get critical mass to go? This is now not working. This this isn't sustainable. People are not going to now want to work it at this level because it is just destroying lives. Yeah, I'll jump in on that. A catastrophic event is what I believe is going to happen, and that if you look at history, that is one of the things that forces change. And that really pains me to say that uh, I genuinely think that something really, really significant is going to happen to a practitioner, a group of practitioners, or um, a very well-known practitioner. And I, I think that's I think that's what's going to force change, or at least um, be a huge catalyst for everybody to look both inwardly and outwardly at what are we actually doing here. I think, Josh, we have seen that. We've seen high-profile, very high-profile coaches having breakdowns. We've seen suicides in high-performance sport, and nothing changes. It's still the same. The environment is still out to get you. I mean, if you think about, let's take football, for example. I can't remember the exact number, but I think that it's something like somewhere between 40 and 50% of all of the football managers in the football league will be fired by Christmas every year. And they know that that's the nature of the sport. Uh, you know, it's when we talk about coaching being sustainable or not, I think that's one of the things we talked about in the thread that, that Phil was talking about. Is it really sustainable? And what is sustainability in high performance coaching? Is it, you know, being waking up every morning and being thrilled to go to work and really enjoying your job and having a smile on your face, or is it just gritting your teeth and barely hanging on for as long as possible and then getting out before something bad happens, before those catastrophic, catastrophic events that you're talking about? And what we're seeing at the moment is that more often than not, it's it's the latter. It's it's people hanging on and hanging on and then being you know getting out of it before something bad happens or or after they've just burnt out. So you know I, I think we have seen those things. We have seen really catastrophic things happen, and it's it's, it's just the nature of the beast. It's the same the same thing. In the the new phase one mentorship that we're writing, the kind of opening prologue is what does a coaching career look like anyway? 
and you know this phase one is geared towards those people who might be you know in year one year two of their career or they may have been a volunteer coach and they're thinking of making you know coaching their full-time vocation and so I've got a number of people just just sharing some of their experiences uh, and but not to sort of I'm trying to make sure that, that to a certain extent I don't give the coaching career could be really bad for you lots of oxygen because we want people to be coaches we need people coaching for good so that's the first prologue one of the very end sessions is coaching for good and you know what what how do you use your power as a coach to change the world and the reason i'm mentioning that for is that i agree with pete that we've already seen examples in the last couple of years of the world of sport, um, not as being about practitioner health from the point of work overload, but there's a bigger picture here, right, of diversity, of discrimination, of prejudice, of all these other things as well, that here we are as, 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 as three blokes, you know, um, Pete, you're a person of colour, and all our perspectives on, on life are our, our perspectives, um, but there's lots of other issues in the, the world, let alone just the world of sport, that, that pervade and perfuse all this. Um, so, you know, it's not just ha- you know, what that person does themselves as a coach and the institution of coaching that they're in, but there's also wider issues that, that also, I think, make this obviously a complex problem to address. So I guess I didn't know if we wanted to kind of delimit our discussion to to defining it to just sports performance or how we might, you know, want to move forward. And maybe we don't put any limitations on to where we go with this. Yeah, it's in, it's in the, the pathway and how you're setting up that mentorship program. It, it's, it's absolutely logical. And something that I believe that probably universities need to do a little bit better and and it's certainly something you you uh, get a little bit more accustomed to as you age is self-awareness so it's getting into the industry with your eyes wide open and eyes wide open for what a career in high performance sport looks like but also eyes wide open to the opportunities and those opportunities are absolutely everywhere had a good conversation with des ryan um uh, who's at Satanta College and he was head of the Arsenal Academy and very prestigious guy. And he was telling me about all the different opportunities that there are everywhere. And he listed off about 15, 20 that he's helped to create for practitioners who have graduated through the Satanta program. And we're talking in the community type things here and taking the, taking the, the blinkers off, SNC can be anywhere there's some fantastic personal trainers but they call themselves personal trainers not SNC coaches because they work with the general public like that doesn't it, it doesn't matter who you work with if you're coming at it from a helping people perspective and potentially that's something that we can definitely um, angle towards in the education process I, I just to your point Nick I'm, I'm I'm all for delimiting and I I think it's fascinating I was reading today just just the criticism um it's, I recorded another podcast this morning and I, I, I mentioned politics and I kind of said to myself I wouldn't mention that again. But it came up because um, I think Rhys Mogg was challenging all the, you know, the people that work in the home office and civil servants to get back into the office. And now we have to have this big push to, to be back in the workplace because that's where stuff gets done. And it's like, 
why like the cynic in me says well that's that's just to prop up the the property market that all your friends own own the you know own the buildings and the businesses or whatever it might be like that's the real cynical side of me the other point goes have we not kind of proven that we can work really effectively from home and that actually that's a far better balance for people's lives and well-being and you know everything else and yes there's downsides that you don't get to to stand around and chat and be be creative or whatever but there's other things that come from that and it just that really struck me when you're saying that actually is is this just a huge or a very small part of a huger you know bigger issue huge did I just say huger it's not a word is it um bigger issue that that we're really kind of grappling with as a society around how how important is well-being like are we just churning through people as a society and not really caring like the, the, the humanity seems to have disappeared if it ever was there yeah i i, I think you're right you know and, and i've said this before on, on on various things that we are a culture that celebrates overwork and we are a culture that sees burnout as a badge of honor as something to strive for um, and you just need to take a look through any of the various social media platforms to see numerous numerous posts about you know to be successful you need to be up at four o'clock in the morning and be in the gym for two hours by three o'clock in the morning and you know all of these, these these lists of things that everybody talks about but nobody actually does um and and you think about the stories that we love as well it, you know bringing it back to sport we love stories of people like kobe bryant right who are in the gym five hours before anybody else and have a full sweat on and have worked out and you know uh, who play through injury who you know shoot free throws with a torn achilles tendon and isn't that amazing and it's like well no like get some rest go to sleep you know <laughs> like we celebrate those types of stories so as a culture we celebrate overwork so there's no surprise really that uh, high performance sport is, is is any different and coaches are pushing through and trying to live up to all of these expectations that the world of sport places on them that as you say broader society places on them so i think kind of uh, as a society using people up and spitting them out absolutely what i will so say though to, to bring it back to your original point was that a lot of sport organizations are doing stuff to make this better there are a lot of um initiatives that are placing more of an emphasis on mental health and placing an emphasis on mental well-being and launching initiatives to take care of their culture so it is happening and those conversations are starting to happen and in research as well you know there's been 10 12 position statements on mental health and sport in the last two or three years so you know, we are starting to see a change and people are starting to have these conversations a lot more than they used to. Um, so we're, we're making progress, I think. Yeah, I, um, as I'll just latch on to your last uh, comment about the, the mental health side of things. So for anyone who's listening, I've and I know Nick and um, well, I think all three of you guys might be, and I have a Facebook community with 630-odd uh, performance practitioners, sports coaches, fitness professionals in. And the topic of mental health comes up quite a lot and very, very, very mixed engagement. And the people who engage will be people who are either educated in the field uh, or people who have had mental health issues themselves. 
the people who don't tend to engage and are a bit standoffish uh, don't drop comments in don't like any of the posts don't really engage with it whatsoever because i can see who is engaging are the people that are seemingly good as as whatever good is and that for me is indicative of the problem uh, or part of the problem it's it's there's still a stigma attached to opening up and being vulnerable and and just saying you know i'm not all right at the moment it still doesn't feel like it's a safe enough space for people to publicly say i'm, I'm not doing okay um but the, i don't understand that because we've got people like tyson fury that it's the best there is like, at the moment in in his sport his field standing up and saying i've had these problems i, I have them i live with them I manage them. You've got some of the best, Toto Wolf from you know motorsport, Hamilton, you, you name it. Like some of the best that there absolutely is have, have put their hands up. So I'm, I'm just hoping that that's actually going to get down to the you know the granular level and the the, the individuals for for them to realise you know what like it's absolutely okay for me to not be not be feeling superb and you know just realize that there is support out there and to open a dialogue to the masses and not just a dialogue amongst people who have suffered from things. So knowing that Josh is picking on me there because I'm one of the people in his Facebook group who sits in the background and doesn't like anything, doesn't get too involved and just, you know, kind of goes, um, uh, I, you know, I block it out because I don't want to go there. You know, so you're right. And you know, we're in a giving profession, right? But that's what we do as coaches. I'm not saying it's on the same level as health workers and all the rest of it, but we, we give a lot of ourselves in our work. And my way of avoiding looking at how I'm struggling is I just keep giving. And that's, that's my remedy for it. Now, a few weeks ago, months ago, I had that conversation with my friends at Altis. You know, Stu, I've been a friend with for a long, long time. And, you know, I honestly, you know, I do work for a company who listen and while we're, we're all working very, very hard at what we do, they, they, they get it and they help you work, sort of talk through things. And when you've had a friend like Stuart for a long time, he's known you for a long time, you know, he's a good, good sounding board for things. But, um, you know, the, the hard thing, Josh, is more of that. It's not that the company depend on me doing a great job or my athletes depend depend on me doing a great job it's having to admit it to my wife to my children where you you feel <laughs> in your way you perceive the world you've always been this rock for everybody they probably have a different version of events on you right <laughs> but you have this narrative of yourself where well they they can't know i'm struggling because how are they going to handle it and and whatnot too so again it's a personal story but that's that's some of the areas that i've had to you know work on and open up with um a little bit more with with my wife um because you know I, I think if i crumble then everything about them crumbles around them but actually it doesn't right you know um and they don't know what they don't know and it can be difficult initially to to open this up to them because they're not used to ha to handling you in that way being that vulnerable person um that they're, they're used to you really sort of standing up and facing things full on and every time i've lost a job what have i done 
I've gone and got another job. I've made things work. You know, my I remember doing a presentation for Altus several years ago in Phoenix, and it was like, you know, a, a Darwinian approach to surviving the industry was my presentation. And I spoke to a lot of people about, you know, the ups and downs, when I lost jobs, when I chose to move jobs, and the consequences of all those things, and, and uh, you know how that affected a lot of my life. You know, and my my family, to a certain extent, for want of a better word, have been victims of my career. To uh, kind of jump in on that, uh, Nick, what you're describing there, I, I wrote a paper with uh, uh, Joran Kenta, a researcher in burnout, and uh, we, we call that the Superman complex this idea that coaches need to be all things to all people all the time. And again, it's that sort of environmental pressure to do that, right? You can't show any vulnerability. You can't show any weakness. You're the one that's supposed to be the leader in charge, you know, impervious to stress. Right. Um, and, and I guess what's, what's interesting is that uh, just to follow up on what Josh said, fr from what I'm seeing, I, I think people are opening up a little bit more and are more willing to have those those conversations and show a little bit of vulnerability and again this is just my my sort of personal experience with with the people that i've worked with um i think what i'm speculating here but i think one of the things that perhaps holds people back from doing that in in sport is the potential consequences of doing that because there are thousands of other people who will take your job if you show any sign of weakness or vulnerability or if you hold your hand up and say look i'm just not coping with this right now or i'm just i'm not managing i need some help okay well you're done let's get somebody else in now that may or may not be the case but if people are perceiving that that's what's going to happen then they are much less likely to ask for ask for some help um so we talk about individual versus organizational responsibility. I think the organization's responsibility isn't necessarily to take care of each individual's well-being, but it's to provide the sort of space and environment where people can be vulnerable and know that that's going to be okay and know that they're not going to be immediately fired and replaced and know that they're going to be supported. Um, so I, th I think, again, to kind of go back to the original question, it's, it's, it's neither the individual nor the organization's responsibility, but their responsibilities are slightly different, I think. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in on um, that. It's really interesting. Like, for Nick, firstly, thanks for sharing with everybody who's listening. Um, I would hang my hat on four guys on this call having had some sort of blips some sort of downs some sort of challenges and and if anyone was able to see the video we've got four guys nodding along here because every single person has been through these sorts of feelings and challenges and but not everybody is opening up about it yes you are right that there's a lot more people opening up now so for example i've had um i've had a really rough patch recently and I've actually changed my tact and I'm a talker. I have to talk to people and being over here, I'm fairly isolated in, in France. So people that I've not necessarily had these like really close relationships with before, I've started telling them when someone says, how are you doing? Are you all right? Well, actually 
not really. Here's what's been going on. And all of a sudden, the relationships I have with people have opened up completely. They've blossomed. And people then, every single person, every single one has turned around and said, you know what, I've struggled with this. And I must have told about 10 or 15 different people, every single one of them guys, incidentally. And, and they turn around and they tell me something in return. And I think, it's not just me. I'm not alone. I can talk about this stuff, but I do have a responsibility because we're not mind readers. When a man says, there's that thing that's flying around on the internet. When a man says, are you all right? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Well, he's not all right. And it's, it's a matter of my, I felt responsible for myself. I knew that I wasn't doing superbly well. I needed to tell people that. So that was on me. So in terms of, uh, there is some individual accountability for it but the responses I got back from the people who had gone through there was there were certain people that were a bit like oh, uh I don't know what to say oh well you know if you need anyone well yeah yeah it'd be good to talk oh oh well what do you want me to do what do you want me to say <laughs> it's almost like first aid there's some there's some mental health first aid that needs to take place and that should probably come in at a much younger age and should probably be look if you're going to do first aid for performance practitioners coaches whatever it is you should bolt on mental health first aid to, the, to, to that as well and then off what you said pete an organization a man united is not a, a bath rugby who's not a olympic sport so no one is going to create that safe space for for everybody to operate so I know that you've mentioned to me before that these places do exist and they could be external. And it was either you or somebody else that mentioned the amount of value that they, no, I think it was you, the amount of value that people got from working alongside someone from a different sport. So there is these places and please, I'm, this kind of guide, guided towards you, Pete, there is these spaces that exist that, that can support multiple practitioners where you have a certain amount of anonymity, where you can go to reach out and it's not specifically within your workplace. They might not be able to solve all your problems, but it is an area where you can open up and, and discuss. So would, am I misquoting? No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of the things that uh, you know, coaches can take responsibility for. You can create your own networks. You know, you go to conferences, you speak to coaches, you can speak to people from outside of your sport. You can speak to people from outside of sport altogether. And it just takes that moment of, uh, I, I hesitate to call it bravery because it shouldn't be brave, but vulnerability to say to somebody else, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not doing okay. But creating those networks for yourself uh, it is really valuable that, you know, everybody will agree with this, that the, the most learning that takes place and the most support that coaches feel isn't those two hour workshops on stress management. It's the 10 minute chat in, during the coffee break or the, you know, quarter of an hour walk in between sessions at a conference where they're just kind of sitting around talking to each other or sitting and having lunch or something like that. That's where the connections are made. And that's where you can create those types of networks where you can speak to people from, you know, other, other sports or again, from, from outside of sport altogether. Um, I was going to say something else then I totally forgot. So I should have just stopped before I said, um, 
I can edit that bit out, mate. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I've done it as well. Leave it in. You said huge earlier. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's definitely getting edited. But now you've done it. Like you're just making work for me now because now I've got to find this twice and edit it. Just stay in. It's cool. Um, I wrote down the deliberate nature of normalizing openness. And, and to me, it's the deliberate part of that that I think is probably crucial. So going back to, you know, conversations in your Facebook group, Josh, and, and you know, organizations doing these types of things, I just wonder, do we need to get to a point where it, I think we can't rely on it being organic? We can't just, and it's not saying we don't trust people, but I probably wouldn't trust people enough for it just to happen regularly enough to be impactful enough to actually make a dent in what we kind of talked about and i wonder how how do we go about or what kind of stuff have you guys seen that that is quite deliberate in getting these conversations started or, or progressing them because that that seems to be just as you said you know if, if you've normalized and you're deliberate in being very open and building better relationships that that's been really productive and i just wonder how how do we take that and expand that and just just make it more impactful so it is something everybody is is really focusing on and i wonder if that's the bridging gap between us and the organization that we have to be deliberate in how we go about it and as do they and then we're kind of in that almost place of synergy where everyone's getting something from it because at some point it doesn't have to be deliberate anymore because it's just a habit and that's just our behavior and now it's normal like now we've crossed that threshold where what we do around here is talk about our mental health and be open and not be manipulative of that and we trust and you know psychological safety and all those kind of buzz terms that we get around sport so uh, yeah I'd be really interested in what your guys thoughts are on maybe that as a way forward i know for me um you know for example you have rugby league cares uh, the professional football association have their things but everything's geared towards players and the managers there's also a bundle of staff that also work for a lot of these organizations too you know and um so i, I think there are i mean peter know probably better than me but i was quite taken by how much rugby league really do seem to you know, work and often are at the forefront of, of breaking down barriers, you know, you know, the first gay rugby team, um, you know, uh, players coming out while they're still playing, not just when they retire, um, you know, but also mental health issues within the game of rugby league. But again, that was all just for the players and managers and uh, not necessarily for support staff that work in these organisations. So, you know, the work that Josh is doing and the research from Pete is kind of, you know, opening people's eyes to that. But, um, you know, we're the more vulnerable ones, right? The, the staff, because they can go and get someone else like me, you know, the player who they're paying X for, they're not going to go and get another one of them. You know, it wasn't so long ago that I could remember, you know, uh, oh, so-and-so wanted a day off because his wife's having a baby. Got to be kidding, hasn't he? We're playing so-and-so on Saturday. You know, but now it's like, hey, so-and-so's not going to be there on Saturday because his wife's having a baby. And everyone's, oh, great. You know, so things things have evolved. But again, I think it's evolving maybe for players and managers, but I don't know how much it's moving forward for all the support staff, everyone else who works beneath that. I mean, if you look at medical staff, S&C staff, interns that so, so want this job in high performance, you know, um, they're the ones I, I would say I have the most fear for right now. And there's a big power differential. 
and where power differentials exist that are exploited for, for different means, um, I'm talking about the work of Jim Dennison here and whatnot, then I think that's, they're the landscapes of the practitioner going into these environments, regardless of what the job might look like, what the kudos might look like, you, you need to figure that out. Are you the right fit for that environment? Even if it is the job with the title you've always wanted, you've got to do some due diligence. And sometimes, as hard as it sounds, maybe you've got to say no and maybe find that other job. And I know in our industry that is so, so tough to do. But go back to that power differential. I think there's issues there that we've got to look into in terms of really Who's running the show? I was lucky with a lot of my managers were very family oriented, you know, were great to have people around, family events and whatnot. So you felt pretty secure. But also for me, I was also the person the manager often brought in where the other staff weren't. So there's a power differential there for me as well that I was able to exploit to my advantage, not knowing I was exploiting it. But other people below me, you know, may not have felt as safe as I felt. Well, I felt as safe as up to the point as when the manager got fired. Then I knew I was going too. But ironically, all those people below that level, they didn't go, right? I went, but they didn't because I came in with a manager. So level of security and um, fear for jobs and all that stuff, it's, it's an ongoing, you know, an ongoing level of stress um, that um, sometimes you don't necessarily realize you're going through it until you hit a certain point. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, <clears throat> it's teed me up quite nicely for what I wanted to say. So in terms of, it's your career and your path and you create it, you build it for yourself. But from the very early, from the onset, we don't often get taught how to map out a career pathway for ourselves. And, and what the fundamentally important aspects are that you need to do. So <clears throat> some of the things that I've been working on relate to understanding how to make good career decisions based on values, as opposed to based on a logo, uh, a badge, a salary, the grass being greener, it being different from what you're doing, a seeming step up, your ego, uh, and making a decision based on what is right for you as a person and, and what's actually going to make you happy and create sustainability. So decisions in your career based on values is, is what's going to separate you from the crowd. And then if you can couple that with, that's actually a product that my company's created. If you can couple that with the two, for me, differentiating factors with career progression, which is networking and career periodization, then you've got this perfect storm of being able to understand that you have stepping stones and that you do have the opportunity to say no and you do have the opportunity to create your own path. Now, career periodization is, is pretty intuitive. It's not rocket science. It's instead of having physical qualities or uh, specific areas of coaching down on the left-hand column of your quadrino or annual plan, you swap those out for core competencies of the industry. And then you just target where you're going to work and how you're going to do that. And, and that really is you taking control of your path. And I believe that that stuff should be taught earlier. So it's getting upstream of these things at a younger and younger and younger age, because the way in which we train athletes and we coach athletes, we all speak the same language, whether we're a coach or whether we are a performance practitioner, as we're terming them, you know, physio SNC support staff, essentially. We learn from a very young age, we learn at GCSE and A-level how to create adaptation 
and principles of adaptation why are we not learning about aspects of our career and self-care and self-management and uh, the, the the mental side of things from an earlier age for me absolutely it should be put in earlier and there should be syllabus created from day 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 one uh, all the way through to how to create how to take your blinkers off how to realize that there's a person and a practitioner and that you are not just a performance practitioner or a, or a sports coach so that's what i think we should be doing really early on i don't have the solution for i know that pete's probably going to talk about this in a second because i know that sport is doing a much better job than we are in our field, Nick, uh, because we're much more organisations-based and, and team-based. We don't have governing bodies that sit across all of us. We don't have uh, governing bodies that people are affiliated with and signed up to, unless we're talking about things like bases. Um, but that's almost like a certification and you're one and done. So, um, yeah, it's, that's my thoughts on that bit. Well, what I was going to say, Josh, was that I wholeheartedly agree with you on the um, idea of values-based decision-making and values-based goal-setting. Um, but what you sort of finished off with there was about understanding that you are a person as well as a practitioner. And it comes back to you know the idea of values, but having values in multiple areas, multiple life domains, multiple aspects of your identity – because if we're talking about avoiding burnout and well-being and making coaching a sustainable profession, then understanding that you are not just a coach, you are a mother, father, brother, sister, whatever it might be, cousin, you know, you like playing music, you like going for walks, like all of those aspects and elements of your identity need to be nurtured and taken care of. So if your coaching career takes a hit, your entire identity isn't completely destroyed. So understanding what your values are and understanding that you have values in multiple life domains is absolutely important. So I just wanted to kind of really agree with, with what Josh was saying there, to be honest. Um, but Phil, you, your original question was, how can we make these conversations more deliberate around mental health and mental well-being? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something now, which is silly. <laughs> It's not, it's not. Bear with me. What if sport was just different? What if it was, why does sport have to be the way that it is? What if we had a culture in sport where people didn't get fired for losing two or three games in a row? And all of their support staff got fired as well. What if sport was... What if it was, what if we redefined what winning was and what success is? So what if we had a culture where funding wasn't distributed based on the number of medals that are won? And the number of medals are won that are won are based on fractions of a second sometimes. And that's people's livelihoods, people's jobs, people's careers. Like what if sport was just different? Because then those conversations around mental health and mental well-being wouldn't be such a problem to have because there wouldn't be that threat of well we've got to we've got to push through we've got to perform it doesn't matter about the stress because we have to win a medal here and if we don't win a medal then you know our funding goes and if our funding goes my job goes and if my job goes my house goes and if my house goes etc 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 so what if sport was just different 
Oh, Pete, man, what a question to put out there. I mean, there's a, there's a, I can't remember which like big successful American businessman said this, but he said um, something along the lines of if we uh, trusted the intellect of the general population, we'd all be out of business tomorrow. And what I mean, relating to what you're saying is that we have these things called these people called fans and fans like winning. And we have this very tribal, you know, societal desire to win. So that's the bit you've got to overcome first. But, but I, I think, I, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But but I think, and I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think maybe maybe we're starting to wake up to this, this idea that sport doesn't have to be the, the way that it always has been. Because if you think about uh, the Olympics that have just gone, right, and the whole uh, the whole drama with Simone Biles and USA Gymnastics and British Gymnastics and British Cycling and all of these other things. Like, I, are, are we starting to, and again, with this emphasis on, on mental well-being and athletes openly talking about this and athletes bringing this to the forefront, like, are we actually starting to wake up to the idea that sport doesn't have to be like this? And I, I don't know, maybe we are. Well, if I, maybe I I'm, just, maybe I'm just an idealist. No, you know, I mean, I, I work in, in the winter sports world and, and you know, I mean, alpine and downhill skiing, I'd still say it's one of those traditional sports. It's very high pressured, fractions of seconds, and it's like the elite end of that sport. But I also start working with people on the world ski tour and freestyle skiing and, and their, their headspace is completely different to anything I ever worked in before, right? You know, one of my young athletes now, it, it stopped being fun. They don't really care about the winning. If they win, I mean, you see this at some of the snowboard events and one of the Olympics. They're all hugging each other. They're all, they're all, they're all so pleased for each other. When one of their friends from another country performs a trick, you know, that they're like, wow, you did that. You know, well, it, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's it. I love that about the Olympics and the, the winter sports in particular. I absolutely loved seeing that. And it was just like a different way of looking at success. And these athletes had a different vision of what success is. And they were all there for each other. And it was just, it was really, really genuinely wonderful to see. And again, I, I just wonder if maybe people are starting to, to twig that maybe that's what sport could be like. Like, isn't that awesome? I don't know. I think that's the untapped potential of sport to be completely honest and and i think it is idealistic but i think it could be it could be realized but it's again it's how do you create enough critical mass in enough people to to sell that change because isn't it isn't it said like quite rightly there's still going to be tens of thousands if not millions of fans that just want to see a team win but my and, and i would be an idealist with you Pete, my, my belief would be we can find a better way to win if we embrace all this stuff, if we actually are less explicit about winning and more explicit or implicit, whichever way you want to look at it, about you know wellness and health and enjoyment and happiness and these types of things, that will get us closer or get us over the line more often. That 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 would be the thing. I can't. I'm never going to be able to prove it, but if I could, I'd probably retire very rich, very, very young, because I, I just feel like that's the that's the sell, and and maybe that's the concession almost that it's still got to come back round to being about winning. But I think if people can find ways to win in a different way and show that it works, then maybe you get the best of best of both. 
I think yeah. there's, a, there's a problem here. Let me just type it. I know you had your hand up and I'm being a bully here and jumping in. You know, <laughs> There's a guy I watch over here on uh, on Apple and uh, John something or other, and he does these uh, kind of like um, stories about big themes in society. And he was talking about where the wealth is in society. And we all know now that the, sh the share market's open to us and so we can go on Acorns apps and invest our pennies. And, and he said, the more and more and more the markets have been open to everybody, Still a bigger share of the world's growth is owned by less and less people, despite the fact we believe. And my point about this is there's a commercial aspect to all this. Where's the money coming from, right, to fund our jobs? So is it for societal gain? Is it for profit? And unfortunately, the way the world is right now, less people are still owning more of the money and more of the profit. And we said this was going to be a bigger topic, and we didn't delimit it, Phil. So this is your fault that I'm going off on a tangent a little bit here now. All right. But this world of where sport was more than just about winning used to exist. They used to exist in a country called Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, the Soviet Union. It used to exist in those countries. Now, yes, it was used for political means in those times. But the reason I, I know this is that in 1991 and 1992, the breakdown of communism, I went to travel all those countries. The biggest thing, all the people that I met locally, I spoke Germans, I was able to speak to a lot of people because they spoke German and Russian, was that they lost all their sports structures. Their community was based around health, activity, getting together in clubs. It was all free because it was a big part of their, of their society was health through sport and fun activities that way. So I'm not saying we all want to be living in a communist society, but Pete, you're, you're sounding very libertarian. And I know some of my friends over here wouldn't be very pleased hearing you speak that way. What I say over here, folks, I mean, over here in the States, you know, because that, that's a very socialist way of thinking, which I've realized that the Americans' idea of socialism and ours in Europe isn't quite the same. Um, but, um, you know, unfortunately, it comes down to, you know, winning brings the money in. And until we start changing the narrative, you know, that it is about people's stories. But are we really interested about someone's story who comes 132nd and doesn't qualify for the Olympic Games? Do we care about them? You know, and yes, we should. But then who's in control of that narrative? You know, we might be interested at a local level because it's a local person that we know, you know, but on the bigger scheme of things, it's still it comes down to everything we've been dealing with the last two years, right? Information, press, who's putting the information out there to us? So sorry, big tangent, but uh, you know, kind of got it off out there. Got it off my chest. <laughs> you feel feel better now, Nick. I feel really good. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Uh, all I was going to say was that um, I, you know I'm not advocating for everybody who turns up gets a medal, you know, or, or anything like that. I, I I just think you know the consequences of of winning and losing. Uh, could maybe be different. We could think about that slightly differently because, yeah, there's money involved, but who makes the decision about who gets money after an Olympic cycle? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that decision could be made slightly differently. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's not about everybody getting a participation medal. It's just about thinking about the consequences of, of, of that because, let's face it, nothing really happens. We just we start again. We're in the NBA playoffs right now. They'll finish, somebody will win, and then in November, we just start again. And then the following year, we start again and again and again. Nobody ever wins the basketball. Nobody ever wins the football forever. 
we, we just target. So the consequences of winning and losing, I think, we, you know, we, we could look at that. We can still keep the winning and the losing because that's the fun bit. But just think about that maybe slightly differently. And again, like I say, the, the reason for that, getting back to the original question, is because that then allows people to be a little bit more vulnerable and to talk about mental well-being in the profession and to make coaching more sustainable, which is where we sort of started the conversation. I think we've seen that and I can't, I've been racking my brains for the last five minutes trying to think of her name, but the, the tennis player that recently retired, like top, top of the game and has just walked away because really comfortable going, kind of achieve what I want to achieve and that's fine for me and I'm not, I'm not going to sell my soul or destroy myself doing something I'm, I'm not investing in anymore. And I just think the, yeah, I guess like the, the level of self-awareness around that I think is phenomenal for one. Um, but the, just just the guts to go and do that because that do you know what i mean as, as josh talked about earlier a seismic event that's a pretty seismic event in tennis to go by the way like i'm not going to devote my whole life to this ridiculous system that drags me all around the world and, and i'm sure they have wonderful times doing it but there's the, you know there's clearly been a lot of stress and on those individuals and everything that goes with that and I just I just wonder if if we'll start to see more and more of that and there's there's a, a couple of American football coaches that have walked away and kind of just gone want to prioritize family and I, I think those stories again just the normalization of those stories I think add add to that rolling stone and it just it just gathers gathers more and more momentum hopefully and that, that's not saying people have to make those really bold decisions but they're their willingness to do that, I just think should be celebrated probably so much more than it is. Cause I've seen like loads of criticism of those decisions. And I'm just like, I don't, lot, I don't get it. A lot easier though, Phil, when they got a lot of cash behind them. It was a lot easier when <laughs> yeah. they got a lot of cash behind them. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing I'd say on, um, on that, and we, we, we've talked about it. We've all talked about it. Actually, every single one of us has mentioned this word, this phrase, self-awareness for that for that lady, I think it named Barty, Barty or Barty, uh, who's walked away, she has to have an incredible amount of self-awareness and be comfortable in her own skin to say, do you know what, I've done, I've done what I wanted to do. She's actually an incredible sportswoman all around. She's, I think she's just about to go and play a ridiculous level golf tournament as well. So she's an incredible sports person. But that possibly or probably stems from her, her upbringing, the way she was raised and, and the exposure she's had through whatever education pathway in her, her environment to get to the point where she's near enough coming towards her prime or in her prime and say, nah, you know, I'm tapping out, I'm done. And uh, Nico, Nico Rosberg did exactly the same as well in, in Formula One. He just, he won the championship. He's like, I'm done. And he just dropped the mic and disappeared, like straight after the championship. Yeah, I'm retiring. What? You just won. Don't you want to defend it? Nope. I'm out. And and he won't come back. And she probably won't come back because those guys have said there's a bit more to life. So they're understanding that there's the person and the practitioner or the person and the player. So what I'm hoping that we can do is latch on to the type of thought processes they've had latch on to where they got that created that self-awareness and we can start to implement that at a younger age and we can start to implement that into our education structures and one thing i noticed down when pete was talking about he went off on a sci-fi rant about sport not being sport and i just got totally lost uh he 
one thing that I noted down was there are regular meetings that take place for all performance directors, for all directors of rugby, directors of, uh, for all managers in the Premier Leagues, each of the different leagues. I've seen this unfold with uh, in the GB structures within the UK when I was at the EIS, that they were talking about these things like athlete well-being, athlete mental health. That was a part of those discussions. And then those performance directors would bring it back. And you guys will have come across this yourselves. They'll bring it back and then there'll be discussions to the team and the group about what they've learned and what they need to implement. So that exists for the athletes. I don't know if that now exists for the performance staff. I know the EIS doing a fantastic job of this. I had some first-hand conversations with the head of SSC about it. They're doing absolutely incredible stuff. But are, are those conversations taking place, performance directors, directors of rugby, managers of football clubs, you name the sport, whatever it might be, where they all get together because they do it, is practitioner, is the support staff, is coach well-being on their agenda yet? Because they're going to get a lot more out of their practitioners if they can facilitate them in managing their own well-being. You can't pour from an empty cup. So you can actually optimize your athlete's performance by looking and focusing on your own a little bit more. And hopefully then we can start to see that trickle down effect. So that was, that was something I kind of latched onto earlier, but yeah, interesting stuff. There's an interesting um, question that raised that, that what you just said raises in my mind as the practitioner as well, it's that feeling of worth, you know, when you've got players who, Again, we're not talking about all sports here, right? Because a lot of us work a lot of different levels. I mean, you know, my Olympic skiers don't exactly get paid a lot of money, right? Um, in what we're doing, and it's all fundraising and whatnot. But you know, certainly in in the the higher end professional sports, you know, a a, a performance practitioner, you know, what they earn in a year, these players are earning in a week. Some of them are earning that in three days, you know. And, um, you know, I think it goes back to culture. One of you mentioned it earlier internally within that is everyone valued and respected. And do you in your role feel worth? I think if you don't feel worth, value or respected in your job, that has to start affecting you mentally, you know, in, in cultures where players get away with abusing you, get away with stuff like that too. And that, that, that has to have- I just li literally that just triggered something in, in my mind so if a player is worth x amount of money when they are in your sessions you are then responsible for a monstrous amount of money so why intuitively are we not saying as the land as the leader of those of that practitioner and of those players why are we not saying you need and you will respect this guy because he's in charge of multi multi-million pounds here or dollars whatever it might be and also why are we not providing our practitioners with the support and if managers potentially looked at it like that then maybe they they could they could change that mindset a little bit but one thing that i really get i've had this conversation twice today i've spoken to, to uh, i spoke on a podcast earlier and I, I spoke about some to someone else about this there's one question that i think straight away managers employers organizations can ask and that is, 
there's, there's free. It doesn't cost you a penny. It's what does well-being mean to you? Because there's four guys on this call and it will mean something different to each one of us. And depending on your phase and your stage in your career, it's going to mean something different. So for a young breaker, a guy who's just trying to break into the industry, it might mean, look, I'd, I'd really like to have my time be invested exactly where it's going to have the biggest impact. I'd love for you to help me map out a CPD plan and help me structure my personal development. Okay, yeah, sure, no problem. We're going to do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. Wow, straight away, you've got value, you've got worth. This guy wants to help me. This guy cares about me. This, this person is really invested in me. That, that is wellness, that is well-being for some people. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum, or guys a little bit further down the line who maybe have kids, and they say, do you know what? I'd love to be able to put my kids to bed a few nights a week or every night of the week. There's training at that hour, so is there anything we can do about it? Well, why can't we rotate this guy and this guy? He can come in in the evenings. This guy comes in in the morning. All of a sudden, you could potentially find a way for these things to work and at least approach these scenarios and these, these, these problems for people and try to find solutions. If, you're, if we're able to do that, then everybody is going to be able to get their, their, their feelings of value. They're going to be able to get... They're going to be able to find you know, that, that little piece of well-being and, and promote it for their staff and for themselves. So back to our very first question then, right? <laughs> what is the responsibility for that layer? You as the individual sort of seeking that within the organisation you're with or the organisation creating some sort of framework where, where being that way is, is possible. It's still chicken or egg, right? Hey, can I come to you in a sec? I was, I was just going to jump in real quick. I... What I find interesting there is, with are we talking about organisations in quite an abstract way? Organisations are people. So I think if we talk about people looking after people, then maybe that's a, a well, it's definitely more human. Like the, an, an organisation can't look after me because if all the people disappeared, and I made this exact comment this morning, so people listening to the podcast from last week and this week will, will definitely be bored of me saying this now, but it, it, you know what I mean? Like if all the people disappear from a building the building does nothing for me. It, it, it physically can't. So it has to be about on a personal level. So I, I think I'm coming a long way around. I think this discussion has crystallized in my mind. It's, it's definitely about us looking after ourselves because I think if we look after ourselves better, we are far more likely to look after other people better and those other people will be in the organization in which I'm in. So I, I kind of feel like we just need to remove that separation of talking about an organization and, and maybe just focus on, let, let's talk on a personal level. I don't know. Pete, sorry, I jumped in. Well, no, yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. I think coming back to Nick's point, you know, there's, there's a bottom line in a lot of these organizations to talk about organizations again. Um, and the bottom line is money, right? Uh, but, but there are examples of organizations that do this stuff well. It's not like it never happens, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and I, I, I might be wrong, but I think I might have mentioned this on the, the previous time I was on with you, Phil. There's a, a documentary called All or Nothing, and it's about American football, and it follows a team every season. Um, and, and it's a, a really fascinating documentary. I think it's on Amazon if you want to do that. If you've got that, if you want to do that, what am I on about? It's late. Um, but do watch it because there's, there's, there is an example on there. It's the Arizona Cardinals, and it's from like five, six, seven years ago this season. 
and the coach of the Arizona Cardinals at the time was Bruce Arians. And some of the things that he instilled within that organization were examples of exactly the sorts of things that you were just talking about, Josh. So like once a week, the first hour of practice was bring your family to practice week, right? And you would just players just throwing footballs around with their kids and dogs running around the pitch and, and all that sort of stuff. And there was a rule where, and it sounds like a stupid rule to have to have, but there was a rule where people weren't allowed to sleep in the office, right? You shouldn't have to have that rule. But if anybody was staying late, then it's like, no, go home. No, you cannot stay here. No, you can't stay over the, like, go home, right? So there are examples where people who are in charge of organizations are creating that type of culture that looks after their support staff. And this is what I was saying right at the start is the organizational responsibility isn't for individual people's well-being. It's to create the space for them to be able to look after their own well-being, to practice that self-care. Um, so yeah, if it's people looking after people, I think then then you know there are there are examples of where that has happened, and there are examples of those organizations being successful and winning as well. It's not just kind of, you know, it's not either or. You don't have to sacrifice being successful for looking after well-being. Yeah, it's it's great, and and I can think of a few different examples as well. And it sounds it sounds brilliant. It's how it should be, but unfortunately, it's, that's the exception and not the norm. And we will see that at the highest level. And that is where I believe that there is a duty of care from the governing bodies to step in and say what this is a privatization conversation it's somebody create this content somebody educate these individuals these head coaches these directors of rugby these managers on how to create this environment because this will be your outcome i'm imagining that that team that you're talking about that american football team were fairly successful right yeah yeah, they, they they were that year of the document of the. Of the well, Bruce Arians is now the head coach of Tampa Bay, so yeah. he's taken that and he's obviously won a Super Bowl with those guys, and he's taken them to a high level. So he's he's transferred that as well, which is another amazing skill. Hmm. Success leaves clues, doesn't it? So it's it's when, but it's going to require somebody. That's that's one organization, and that's one guy going to another organization and stealing it, and then he might go to another one and another one. But then when a new guy comes in, it will just revert back to whatever he wants to do so or, or they want to do. So this is what I'm saying, that the NFL or the, the Premier League or the Football League or the RFU need to be managing and instilling this, in my opinion. And that is this, this guy is going to be running education or this company is going to be running education on this to upskill you on how to create this environment and how to look after the wellness of your staff and your players, staff and players. We, we should be now be, be put together and bolted, bolted together because that is going to improve performance outcomes exponentially. I, I, that, that's a conversation that needs to happen at the very beginning of coach education, not at the end. And uh, again, this is kind of personal experience. The younger coaches that I've spoken to and worked with are very, very much more aware of all of the things that we are talking about. And, you know, the, the, the Bruce Arians of the, of the league and, and of coaching, like his support staff will take that model and 
when they get their opportunity, I would imagine that they would instill some of those principles and then their support staff will do the same and so on and so on and so on. But yeah, those conversations need to happen at the start of coach education rather than halfway through or at the end. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and that is part of the trickle down effect. So those athletes who have been elite athletes who have been exposed to the proactive approach to athlete to, that, that they experienced as a player well-being wellness that's what they will want to instill in their staff so it's it's a great point and that that transition will start to take place as well so it's just it just needs to be expedited really in my opinion we know coach Dan Path the head coach of Altus an amazing human being um and that's obviously trickled down to Stuart and Kevin and Andreas and myself and all the people that he's mentored it's now trickling down to the content the situational stuff, bringing you guys in to the session, you know, was, you know, because of Dan Paff's own battles with mental health and burnout in the industry, you know, uh, which is which he is open with because he knows by being open with that, it will help other people to hear that he has had to, he's been through these things, you know, his, his story is not, not a secret. And, you know, right down again to the phase one, you know, I mentioned the prologue earlier, but the first session, the first Altus Culture Central is be a generalist, more courses, more specialism, be the best they can be in this one, one small area. But that, that isn't the reality of working in the coaching world, is it? You know, yes, you want to be very, very good at your piece of it, but we work in a system. You know, we, we, we function towards a greater purpose. And if we can instill that greater purpose of the organization, which is its people, to be, yes, we want to have a winning system, but a winning system also means that the organization, i.e. to Phil's point, the people, sense fulfillment in being on this journey together, win or lose, we feel, we feel fulfilled. So, now, so what that, you're saying? That, that would be fantastic. What you're saying, Nick, is what if sport could be different? Exactly. I know. Yes, Pete. It's it's been working through my head, this whole conversation, and we got there. I love it. Um, Nick, with your permission, can I I share what you put the last comment in the chat, and could we critique that? Because I feel like we've all all agreed on way too much, and and I would would like to just discuss that if we could. Um, Fantastic. So you just put – and – People have to kind of rewind back. I can't actually remember when exactly you said it, but your comment was live to work or work to live. And I I love that this came up because it's one of my real bugbears when I see this. And, and it tends to get thrown around as work-life balance. And it's a really common phrase. And I just wonder, like, is that indicative of where we're at? That we've created this level of separation where we don't think work is part of our life. And it really bugs me that, that that's kind of where we've got. And I just think, surely they have to be one and the same, right? Like they, they, life is life and work is a part of life and there should be a balance and that's what we should be aiming for. But the way we've separated stuff has just created this, yeah, just really, I don't know, kind of problematic perspective that people are searching for an answer to try and put them together as separate things when I, I from my perspective and, and I guess my belief, I, I just, they, they have to be the same. So I'd be really interested in just, just where, or what your guys thoughts on that might be. Am I, you know, 
by all means tell me I'm wrong. Like, why do we think we've landed on that position where we where we kind of view them as separate? Pete's either got a spasm in his finger there, or he just he's really eager to get in. Yeah, no, because um, uh, there's a, a PhD student who I'm supervising called Marketa Chimova. And she is doing some really, really excellent work in this area. She's looking at coach well-being, and um, some of her, her preliminary findings suggest that coaches really don't like this term work-life balance because coaching is different. It's different to other occupations. It just is. We have to kind of accept that, right? Coaches are away for, you know, maybe half the weekends of the year sometimes, They're isolated from friends and family. They work ridiculous hours. And, you know, there are other occupations where that happens. But, you know, we've got all of the environmental things we talked about earlier, job insecurity, all that sort of stuff, right? So work-life balance, just it's not an, a term that's applicable. What they seem to prefer is this idea of harmony harmony between the work that they're doing and their uh, personal lives and the other elements of their identity that we, we talked about before is there some way of bringing those things into harmony rather than this idea of of, of balance now conceptually like i feel like those two things are different um i guess it's difficult to explain how those two things are different um but it's just a, it's, it's a really interesting idea that actually balance isn't something that you can really achieve in high performance sports coaching but perhaps harmony is and it comes back to what i was saying before this idea is okay well can i can i have my family with me at, at practice a couple of mornings a week to bed like nick was saying earlier you know that's harmony rather than rather than balance. I don't know, Nick. Do, do you have any thoughts about that? You had your hand up. I first of all um, on the you know work to live, live to work. We are so privileged in the society we live in that we have a choice in that. First of all, all right. Let's not forget that, and let's let let's let's stop crying about it. And um, you know we we have the option to choose a job to to put food on our plate and, you know whatever but there's a perspective there first of all right so sometimes western society much choice to do things um and so with that also in mind though i think the, the concept of work-life balance is aspirational but it's also bs um, you know, there are times when you emphasize different priorities because you have to emphasize different priorities. And that kind of leans into what Pete was saying about it being a bit more of a symphony, a bit more of a harmony of these things. And that's why the conversations then, you know, uh, are broader. It's not just about me and my career and my wife in the banking career and we were in England and we go off in the morning, do our separate things. However, guess what? Our kids go off in the morning. They go and do their separate things, you know? But it works in this world that at some time around 5.30, 6 o'clock, we all clash with each other in this little box that we live in, especially in houses in England, that's a little small space. We get thrust into each other again, right? And it just doesn't really work. Um, so we do have to think more about the symphony, the harmony, um, and that at times... You know, at times in the Western world, we have the ability to go and take a two week holiday. And on that two week holiday, 
you know, hopefully you're de-emphasizing work and you're emphasizing time with your family. Um, so work-life balance, I mean, I guess, you know, everything's down to semantics end of the day. It doesn't mean everything's got to be 50%, you know, no, it doesn't. It just means I think that the energies and the resources that you're putting into any kind of element of your, your life is being done without the detriment to other elements of your life. And that goes to the Taleb thinking of anti-fragility, right? That, you know, you can definitely storm forward to get something done, but try to minimize the cost of that on, on not just other people, but other aspects of your life. Yeah, I, I think it's a great, a great discussion and, and really good points. There's two, there's a couple of key words I've written down here. And one of those that like choice, 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 choice is the, is, is the massive word that we're talking about here. And we think we don't have a choice, but we, of course we have a choice. We, we, we've chosen this industry and therefore I choose not to moan and bitch about it. Um, that's, that's my choice not to do that. And someone else can choose to moan and bitch if they want to, and I'll choose to block them. Uh, then the other word I've got written down is detrimental. It's when one area is having a detrimental impact on the other, but not necessarily only to yourself, but to the other people that are dear to you and in your environment. That's when we probably need to start having a look at ourselves and saying, okay, what are my choices I'm making here? The, the third thing I wrote down was surfing. Um, now, hear me out on this one. So if you sit at the same, if you surf at the same beach every single day of the year for a number of years, you're going to see experience different types of wave, different types of swell. Just imagine that's your job, that's your work, that's your career. Sometimes the waves are going to be huge and you might not have the skills to be able to handle them and you're literally going under. Other times you're having the time of your life and because you ride in a nice wave, but no two waves are the same. And over a period of time, over, over a year, over multiple years, you're going to have all sorts of different, uh, different waves and be exposed to different types of surfing. And, and that's essentially your career. Sometimes you, you're going to remember the great waves that you rode. Oh, when I got in that one, it was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. The swell was huge, but I handled it. Or I got absolutely smashed to pieces by that one and I nearly drowned. So it, this is what the, our careers are like and if you can play it safe and stay in the slow the, the the low and slow swell or you can go 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 for the big ones but for me it's about learning to surf and learning how to cope with these different things that get thrown at us by the career path and the industry that we've chosen or don't go in the water either upskill educate yourself expose yourself to career decision-making models, frameworks, expose yourself to reflection strategies, expose yourself to well-being, uh, wellness from people who are expert or, or more knowledgeable, expose yourself to how you can set healthy barriers for yourself, how you can approach, negotiate these things with your uh, employers. If you're a manager, be a human, try and think how you can influence those guys below. Ask that single question, what does well-being mean to you? And, and for me, that's like that, well, I don't know, that summarizes, um, that summarizes that discussion for, from my side. I love it. I really like that analogy. Thank you, Josh. That's class. Um, guys, I'm, I'm really conscious it is quite late now and you've got, you know, families and lives to go and live and that type of stuff. So I guess kind of maybe last one from me, which is a bit of a hint to um, you guys to, to tell people where to find you and the work you're doing. So what, what kind of top tips would you give to people 
um, that maybe want to learn a little bit more about this, that just want to take a, I'm reticent to say control, but just to just to explore some of this further. So where where can they find you firstly? And then maybe what what would you recommend they check out if uh, if you've got any you know good suggestions? Well, I'll jump, jump in first then. Um, don't be scared to do a regular personal audit of yourself. You know, I think Josh's book is a great example of that. And, um, you know, I think we can be taught a lot about reflective practice in our in our education, but they kind of overcomplicate it, you know? I don't think it has to be as much as they say. So just like you do any kind of SWOT analysis or, or you know, uh, of, with your athletes, strengths, weaknesses, uh, one of the biggest things that um, was revelationary, really, to a lot of our elite coaches on our phase three mentorship was how few of them do that. And for them, that was one of the biggest things that they did. They went back to the essentials and fundamentals of what it meant to be a coach, threw away all the bells and whistles and just focused on deep understanding of those areas. And that also leads to a deeper understanding of yourself. And as a young coach, we don't we don't expect you to have a well ingrained philosophy and a well-ingrained understanding of yourself. You, sorry, you haven't lived long enough yet. You haven't done enough. And that, that is fine. And so we just encourage you to, you know, build in that audit of yourself. And that that's very central to every single stage of our, our mentorship and, and what, what we do at Altis. Um, you can check us out at www.altis.world and, um, you know, look at our mentorship offerings i'm so lucky that i get to work and learn from so many of our own staff but our guest experts like the two gentlemen we got on here today coming in and the other coaches that you know um just get on and coach that's their jobs week in week out they're not social media people or producing books or whatever but they they do a fantastic job in the context of their world and my ability to sort of sponge all that up and from mentorship to mentorship to to share those learnings and and more importantly actually how they share it amongst themselves is key so take that audit of yourself and don't be shy to create that network and um you know as we said that network for your own personal well-being and health might extend outside of your immediate group in your sports world don't try to uh, try to reach out and find those other groups that um you know, are going to be supportive of you, can be challengers as well as cheerleaders. We don't always need pats on the back sometimes, right? There's nothing wrong with the proverbial, come on, son, you can get through this. Come on, lad, or whatever we want to say, you know, that that's okay too. So, um, yeah, that's that's my two penny worth to wrap up today. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, obviously check me out on social media as well, Nick Ward underscore coach or coach underscore Nick Ward. Top man. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Josh, go on. Yeah, so I guess my my buzz phrase is you're more than just a performance practitioner. That's that's my tagline, and that's my tagline because you're what we get so caught up in and defined by our industry, which ultimately is going to chew us up and split us out at some point. Uh, I use the term being shit canned. Shit canned is is uh, being asked to reapply for your own job being turned down for a pay rise being sacked being fired uh you know any term that that you want to talk about and i don't know a single practitioner with over 10 years in the game who hasn't experienced this at least once and if you're wrapped up as pete said if your identity is wrapped up in your job then that's going to hit you really hard so i also would say that i don't know a single person 
within our industry with over 10 years of experience who hasn't hasn't been somewhere on that pathway to burnout so you can get left of this bang you can set yourself up to succeed and for success within this industry what i do my company is all about improving and creating uh better decisions for yourself but uh, it, with regards to your your happiness health and wealth which is how i define well-being and some of the products that we create in our career decision making models career periodization how to map out your pathway uh, a journal that um, nick was referring to called the reflective practitioners journal which is uh, available through my website or on amazon and um yeah it's it's uh, it's giving you skills and tools which people aren't currently offering it to to the masses in a really simple and digestible format so if you're interested in finding out a little bit more detail about some of those things you can find me uh, my website is yourcareer-blueprint.com uh, instagram is career blueprint at career blueprint twitter is coach blueprint one i always forget these uh, so yeah, just uh, have a look guys. And I'm, I'm always open to talk about these sorts of things. And also I mentioned my Facebook community, which has got about 630 guys and girls from all sorts of different sports, sports coaches, uh, physiotherapists, SNC, all sorts of performance practitioners and fitness professionals. So a huge open space for people to come and share without judgment to learn, upskill, educate, get involved, not get involved. And, and essentially it's, it's a really, really open place for, for people to just come and just, just you're not alone in, in your thoughts and feelings regarding your, your, your struggles. And please take, take some ownership for yourself by, by opening up a little bit and just tell one person and see what happens. Uh, if, if you're struggling with something, it will really open some doors for you. Top man. Thanks, Josh. Just for the benefit of the tape, I, I, that wasn't you barking, or I think that was Nick's dog. I might, you might have trodden on it. I'm not hundred percent sure. So just, just so no one thinks there was, there was, you know, you were making weird noises. <laughs> uh, Pete, finish us off. Okay. Uh, I feel like I should say something profound after listening to Nick and Josh there, but really I'm just going to kind of echo what they've said in terms of uh, tips and advice. I think the self-awareness piece is absolutely vital and it just starts with fundamental questions that you can ask yourself. What stresses me out? What drains me emotionally? Um, what challenges me? What drives me? when is my reaction to what's happening around me different to how it normally is, is one of the key questions um, that, that, that perhaps comes out of some of the burnout literature. Um, and, and to agree with what Josh said about values and identity, and we talked about that earlier, and, you know, you, you can't always have a two-week holiday in the Bahamas. It would be lovely if we could all do that, but we can't. But what I can do is make sure that when I am at home having dinner, I am fully engaged in being at home and having dinner. Or when I am putting my daughter to bed, I am fully present in reading her a story and putting her to bed and not thinking about the bit of work that I've got to do the next day. So they're not really holidays as such, but they are making sure that I am fully invested in exactly what it is I'm doing and being present in that moment. And that's kind of a holiday in itself. 
little mini breaks, I guess you could call them. Um, so that would be my, my, my sort of tips and, and advice is to really think about some of those things. Um, in terms of where people can find me, uh, Twitter is probably the place where I am most often, probably too often, uh, and that's at Pete Olushaga. It's like 10% sports psychology stuff, 50% social commentary, and 40% stupid GIFs. Um, so you can also follow me at EPM Podcast which is the 80% mental podcast, which I, I host, which we um, talk about all things to do with sport and performance psychology. Uh, so you can uh, find that on Twitter at EPM podcast, uh, or go to the website, 80percentmental.com uh, and look through some of the stuff on there. Fantastic. Cheers, Pete. Um, guys, I've, I've absolutely loved this. I think it was, a, as we said right at the beginning, it was a, it's, a, it's a big topic. Um, I think we've got into some real detail and I think, you know, just a massive thank you for you for, for being as open and as honest and um, also for just, yeah, some really, I would hope, impactful stuff that people can take away and, and just implement in their lives on a, on a daily basis. And I, as I said, I guess from, from my perspective, it's, it's people dealing with people. And I think the more we're deliberate about that and intentional, the, the better we all are, right? Like this is, this is the point of that Twitter thread and this is the point of the conversation and, and all that sort of stuff. And Nick's jumped back in. So go on, Nick. Phil, um, if there is a possibility when you do edit this, I'm not sure when it's going out, but on April the 30th, I'm going to be in Sheffield and I'm going to be doing a like a, a beta test, sorry, beta test for those people in the UK, a, 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 a test run actually of some of our presentations that form part of the Altis Mentorship Phase 1 Coaching Essentials. So I'm working in conjunction with Dave Hembra and Helen Barbell and we're going to have a morning where we're going to uh, show those videos, those presentations from this mentorship to, uh, to a group of coaches and, uh, you know, get their discussion and commentary on what they're hearing. So, you know, we want feedback from them, but also it's, it's a learning opportunity for some younger coaches or coaches that are living in around the area to come and join in that. That will be at um, Kit Locker, actually, where Helen Barbell is now located starting around 8 30 in the morning going through to about 12 30 on the 30th of april love it um i you've just bumped the episode i did this morning till the week after so i will promote you guys so it goes out it will go out on sunday so yeah nick that's brilliant if you can if you can send me a link for where people could sign up or get in touch with you email address or something i'll i'll put that in the show notes and uh, and people can jump on and, and check that out i'm sure some people will be keen so um yeah no absolute pleasure guys thank you for, you know genuinely this is this has been a, a an awesome discussion on a number of different levels so um i'm just gonna round up the roundup to those listening we hope you enjoyed the episode uh links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on rugby coach weekly i'd like to thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well 